If you got your Bibles this morning, go me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. 1 Peter has been called by many scholars a discipleship manual. And let me say this, you will never be a disciple without discipline. Okay? You will never be a true disciple without discipline. And Peter is not writing some pie-in-the-sky illusion message to these scattered strangers. Peter understands and wants us to understand that following Christ means denying yourself, not finding yourself, not indulging yourself, but denying yourself, taking up your cross, which is symbolic of death, persecution, and following him. See, when you follow Christ, you must not only accept the benefits, the privileges, and the promises of being in Christ, but you must also accept the demands, the responsibilities, and the persecutions that come with it. And I'm reminded before we get in our text this morning of John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, let me just allude to it just briefly, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. And he turns to them and he tells the crowd there, the only reason why you are following me is because I fed you. And then he tells them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. In other words, following me is not just loaves and fishes. It's not just blessings. It also requires you to accept the demands, the persecutions, the hardships. And when he said that, those people in the crowd said, we don't like that. We don't like that at all. And the Bible says at that time, many of his disciples turned and walked away. And they said, we can't do this. If you want to feed us, fine. If you want to bless us, fine. But as far as telling us to lay down our lives, we don't want to do that. And then Jesus looked at his inner core there and said, will you also go away? And Peter said, Lord, where else can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And let me ask you a question this morning. Where else can you go? If you go to the world, it may offer you fame. It may offer you pleasure. It may offer you fortune for a little while, but it's simply for a little while. But guess what? When you follow Jesus Christ, you may suffer, you may die, you may be persecuted, but guess what? You have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Peter is writing to those that are scattered, those that are aliens, those that are strangers, those that are under severe persecution. And one of his main themes in this short letter is the theme of our conduct, how we behave. He wants them to realize that you're an ambassador of Christ Jesus, that you're a pilgrim, you're a stranger, you're passing through. And so numerous times he mentions about keeping your conduct well, keeping your behavior the way it's supposed to be. 
And last week we looked at the suffering of Jesus Christ and what that accomplished for us. It accomplished victory. His victory became our victory. And so since we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, how should we live in spite of our difficulties? How should we live in spite of walking through the valley of the shadow of death? How should we live in spite of persecutions? And so let's look at verses 1 through 6 and look what he says here. He says, therefore... Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are already dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. I want us to look at that final phrase he uses there, that we should live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Now, how do we live in the Spirit, according to God's will. I believe there's some practical things that Peter writes in these first six verses. And some of this may seem, um, I don't know if the word is mundane or it just seems, seems well, yeah, really. But I, there's sometimes we need to be reminded of some things. And so I'm not going to tell you I'm giving you any kind of new information, but I'm going to be reminding you of some things. And so let's look at what Peter says. How do we live in the Spirit? according to the will of God. The first thing he says that we've got to do, look at verse 1. He says, therefore, since Christ has also suffered in the flesh, he says, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. So in other words, what he says there is this, if you're going to live in the Spirit according to the will of God, you've got to guard your attitude toward sin. Okay, you've got to guard your attitude towards sin. See, there's an old adage that says this, that your outlook determines your outcome. In other words, you've got to have the right attitude, the right outlook, if you are going to live according to the will of God. And Peter says this, as a child of God, you've got to arm yourselves. And that word arm yourselves is a military term, which simply means this. It means put on your armor because you are going out to battle. And let me say this, this doesn't happen automatically. People just don't wake up automatically and have a good attitude. You got to train your mind. You got to arm your mind. 
And I've seen that this week just in my life. I didn't have a good attitude on some days. Matter of fact, Tuesday, I didn't have a good attitude when we went to the nursing home. And I've never been tested for COVID. I've never had that thing touch my brain before. <laughs> and they met us at the door and said, you got to put this on, you got to get this up your nose. And my attitude was not Christ-like. I said, I'll do it myself. What I'm saying is this. Your outlook, your attitude is not something that's going to happen, a good attitude, automatically. It's something you've got to discipline your mind and say, nope, I'm going to have the mind of Christ. And so you've got to arm your mind, you've got to discipline your mind and realize every day that you wake up, you are in a spiritual battle. We're in a battle in this world. And there's two things that we need to remind ourselves in order to have the proper attitude in this life to live for Christ. The first thing is this. You must have the proper mindset towards sin, realizing this, that sin has a cost. Sin has a cost. See, sin costs Jesus his life. He was sinless... But yet I was sinful, and so he willingly took my place on the cross. And that's what Peter's saying when he points back to therefore in verse 1. He just reminded us of the suffering that Jesus Christ did. It was the just for the unjust. And every day we need to have a militant attitude towards sin and realize that sin has a cause. Because you know what? If you're not careful, as a Christian, you can get a lackadaisical attitude toward sin. You can. Let me prove it to you. There's some things now that come on TV that you would have shut the TV off years ago that you just keep it going. Why? Because we're bombarded with it and if we're not careful, we get desensitized to these things. And we, as God's children, need to realize that sin, my sin, cost Jesus his life. And because of that, I need to hate it with a passion. I need to hate sin. See, I'm not going to tell you that sin is not pleasurable. Because the Bible says that there are pleasures in sin for a season. See, sin will thrill you, then it'll kill you. It will fascinate you, then assassinate you. It has the greatest advertising, but it delivers the least. And when we think about it like this, how can we enjoy something that costs Jesus his life? Now listen, if you had a child that got killed by a drunk driver... You wouldn't think of alcohol in the same way or drinking in the same way because you would know the destructive nature that's in it. And what we got to realize is this, is that sin has a cost. It costs Jesus his life and God help us to hate sin as much as 
you hate it. Not to placate it, not to excuse it, but to hate it in the same way our holy God hates it because it costs his son his life. Well, Peter says, not only this, we got to realize that sin has a cost. But look at verse 1b. Sin has been conquered. He says, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And this is another one of those complex scriptures in which there is a differing opinions from sound biblical scholars of what Peter is trying to say. I'm going to give my best interpretation of what is going on here. When we see this term, has ceased from sin, that word cease means it's in the present tense, which means this does not sin anymore. Now, if you think that this means that when you become a Christian, you become perfect, I believe it's because you've got a very narrow definition of what sin really is. Okay? Because we know the saying, well, I don't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, or hang with those who do, so I must be good. Well, you know what? Sin is a lot broader than that. If the Bible says, don't be anxious for anything, and you're anxious, guess what? You are disobeying God's word, and that is sin. Whatever is not of faith is of sin. When you doubt, when you have unforgiveness, when you have bitterness... There's, I mean, we could go all day long and talk about what sin is. And I've realized in my life that what we consider bad sin is what other people are doing. Right? We don't want to look in the mirror our own selves and say, you know, I, I had a rotten attitude that day. I, didn't, I, I wasn't Christ-like. I didn't love God with all my mind that day. And so, but what we got to realize is this, is that, when he's talking about cease here, I believe he's talking about that those who are in Christ Jesus, they have died to sin. In other words, when you come to Jesus Christ, the power of sin has been broken in your life. 1 Peter 2.24, go back a couple of chapters to what he says here. It says about Jesus that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. When he says that we die to sin, what he's saying there is that sin no longer has power over the child of God. Even the Apostle Paul affirms this in Romans 6. Look what he says in Romans 6 verses 1 through 6. Because the Apostle Paul is talking about the grace of God and how great it is and we're not under the law, we're under grace. And he knows when he writes this that somebody's going to say, aha, since where sin abounds, grace is much more abound, then maybe we should sin more so that God's grace can become more evident. That would be a, a, akin to this. If your wife is a forgiving woman, that would be like saying, well, since she's so forgiving, I need to hurt her every day so she can express her forgiveness. That's foolish. And so this is what Paul is arguing here. He says, what shall we then say? He says, are we to continue in sin so that 
grace may increase. Verse 2, he says, may it never be. How shall we who have died to sin live in it any longer? Then verse 3, or do you not know? You know this, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. This word baptized is not talking about actual baptism, but what he's saying is you have been identified with Christ. You have been placed with Christ. In other words, listen, when Jesus Christ was crucified, I was crucified. When Jesus Christ was buried, I was buried. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, I was raised from the dead. Verse 4, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in likeness of his dead, certainly we shall also be in likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. In other words, Paul says you got to know something here that when you became a child of God, you died to the power of sin. In other words, the power of sin has been broken in your life. You can no longer say the devil made you do something because he's not your master. Oh, you can choose to do something, but guess what? If you sin, it's because you chose that. It had nothing to do with the devil making you do anything. The apostle Paul would say in Galatians 2 and 20, I have been crucified with Christ and yet I live, but it's no longer I who live, but now Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. Let me tell you something. You've got to realize this. Sin has a cause, but it's also been conquered. Go back to Romans 6. He continues to talk about this. Therefore, because you've died to it, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. In other words, quit letting it call the shots because it's not in charge anymore. You've got a new master. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to Satan. You're now a servant of the risen king. He says, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be your master, for you are not under the law, but under grace. If you can know this, Hosea says, my people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. And let me tell you something, when you come to Jesus Christ, he breaks the power of sin in our life. We don't have to do it. We don't have to give in to those desires. 
when you know you don't have to do it and with the help of the Holy Spirit of God that when temptation comes our way, what do we do? We yield to the Spirit at all times. And if you'll walk in the Spirit, guess what? You will not fulfill those desires of the flesh. And Paul says, listen, if you're going to live according to God's will, you have got to guard your mind. You've got to guard your attitude and realize, listen, sin has a cause. We need to understand the sinfulness of sin and realize that sin has been conquered. We don't have to do those things anymore. We have been set free, praise God. We've been set free. Then he says the next thing that we've got to do is not only guard our attitude, but we also got to guard our appetites. Now, remember in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul said, don't let sin reign. Now, sin no longer reigns in the life of a Christian, but we still, it still remains around us. Okay? It no longer reigns, R-E-I-G-N-S, but it still remains. See, the power of sin has been broken in my life, but guess what? The presence of sin is still all around us. It's all around us. And so he says you've got to guard your appetites. See, living a life of holiness is not easy. It's not easy. It's not easy to go against the grain. It's a warfare. It's a struggle. Peter says in verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, and I've got these parentheses here to help us understand this verse, what he's talking about, our bodies no longer for the lust, the fallen nature of men, but for the will of God. What Peter's saying is this, listen, you don't know how much longer you have here on this earth. And so because you don't know how much longer you've got, it's time to put away the sinful pursuits of your flesh. See, if you are convinced that Jesus Christ is coming back for us, whether in life or whether in death, you will realize I've got to make my time for eternity count. And so he says you got to, Guard your appetites so that you can live according to God's will. You want to know, you, you know what God's will is? Because I know we're all about God's will. Let me tell you what God's will is. God's will is you to abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. God's will is for you to do good in all things. 1 Peter chapter 2. God's will is for you to give thanks in everything. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. God's will is you to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 5. God's will is you to present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, Romans chapter 12. God's will is for not to be just a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. That's what God's will is. You don't know what God's will is? There it is. There it is. Now, why is God going to lead you in unknown if you don't even do what's known? And so, Peter says here, you got to guard your appetite. Go on to verse 3. He says, for the time already passed, it's sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. That's just talking about lost people here. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abdominal uh, idolatries. 
What he's saying there is this. Listen, it's time to grow up and be done with that foolishness. It's time to grow up and be done with those pursuits. Paul would say in Galatians 5 and 17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, sets the desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. We got to realize, listen, even inside a child of God, there's this old man we're dragging around. There's this old flesh we're dragging around. And we're in a battle here between our flesh and our spirit. That's what Paul says in Romans 13 and 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. And I've told, I, I told the Wednesday night classes a couple weeks ago, don't ever think that you can't wake up one morning and do something stupid. Yeah. Don't ever think that you're at the point in your life where you can't do something embarrassing. See, you've got to get your mind right and realize we're in a battle. You've got to realize that sin has a price. You've got to realize it's, been, it's a cost. And you've got to also guard your appetites because look what James 1, 14 and 15 says about sin. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, his own desires. It's your own lust, your own desires that carries you away. I say this many times, but listen, if eating kale was a sin, we could all live a holy life. Right? Some of you look at me like you don't even know what kale is, but you're, you're blessed then, okay? But if eating banana pudding was a sin, mm, we'll struggle with that. And we need to realize every single day there is a battle that is going on with our flesh and the spirit inside of us. And it's your own desire. Now listen, what you may struggle in or an area of your weakness, let me say it like that, may not be somebody else's weakness. You may look at somebody and say, well, how can you be so dumb to fall into that? Well, they may look at you and say, how can you be so dumb to run your mouth like that? Right? They may, they may look at you and say, how can you do that? Well, your weaknesses may not be their weakness. But you know what? I say this. The devil knows our weaknesses because we probably told it to him. Right? And just about the time you think you've got it all together, here it comes. You've got to always be in a state of red alert because we live in a world that would do anything and everything it can to try to destroy our soul. I mean, we live in a sexualized society like no other. You got to watch what you watch. You got to watch what you listen to because the battle is out there raging. 
And so Peter says, listen, if you're going to live according to God's will, you've got to guard your appetites and realize there's some things in my life that it may want to wake up one day and say, let's go. But you've got to have a militant attitude towards sin and say, I'm done with that. Look what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 22. He says, Timothy, you've got to flee or run from youthful lust. In other words, don't play with it. Don't see how close you can get to it. He says, no, you've got to run from it. And you also got to run to something else, which is righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Let me tell you something. Some of us need to start some running. We need to start running. I ain't talking physically, so don't worry about that. I'm talking about some of us need to do some running away from those things that's causing us to stumble. And if Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you're not strong enough, you need to run from that, what does that say about us? We are in the same way. We need to run from anything that could stimulate youthful lust in our bodies and run to Jesus Christ, run to righteousness, run to faith, run to love, run to peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So now must we guard our attitude and guard our appetites. Third thing is this, you got to guard your acquaintances. Look what he says, verse 4 here. And all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you. There's that word again, run. See, if you're going to live according to God's will, you must not only watch your attitudes or relates to sin. You must not only watch your appetites, make no provision for the flesh. You better watch your acquaintances, who you run with. Because I know we don't like to be rejected. We don't like to be ostracized. Kids, they don't want to be left alone. They want to be accepted in the group. And so what happens is this, we begin to let our standards loose so that we will be accepted by the crowd, right? They tell a bad joke, what do we do? We laugh at it. Why? Because we don't want people to think we're strange. We don't want think that we're weird. Only weird people want to be thought of as weird, right? But we don't want to be thought of as weird. And so what do we do because we don't want to be weird? We try to conform so that we're not rejected by this world. And let me tell you something. I've seen it so many times. How many times have we seen? I've seen in my ministry young people get saved, get off drugs, get off alcohol. They may go to some kind of Christian retreat. And what do they do? They come right back to their old stomping grounds. And they get back up with the same gang. Come on now. 
And all of a sudden, it ain't long they're doing the same thing they were delivered out of. Why? Because they don't want to be considered weird. They don't want to be considered strange. They don't want to be left all alone. But let me tell you something. When you live for the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be considered strange. You're going to be considered sort of weird because you don't go with the flow. And I've told people this time and time, listen, if you're in a small town and you've got a bunch of friends that took you down the wrong road and all of a sudden now you got delivered, you got free, you got saved, some of them need to say, you know what, i got to just uproot and i got to get out of here and I don't come back again. Because I know for a fact that there was a, a time in my life when I was hanging around a certain group of people and if my dad didn't move from that area, there's no telling where my life would have been right now. People I thought were my friends don't even call me anymore, don't even have any communication anymore. All they wanted me for was to have a good time. They weren't looking at my best interests. And we need to think about who we are running with, who we're hanging out with. See, Jesus says this in Matthew 5 and 29 through 30. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, it is better for you to lose one eye than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, it's better to cut it off and throw it away from you than to lose that whole body into hell. And Jesus was saying, Matthew 10, 37 39, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake, he will find it. You got to watch who you are hanging with. Let me say this. If you're a child of God and you're hanging out with the world and they don't think you're weird, you better check your salvation. You better check your salvation. Because evidently, you're doing the same things they're doing, enjoying the same things they're enjoying. And so you may not be saved. He says you got to guard your attitude. you got to guard your appetites you got to guard your acquaintances. Verse 5, he says this also, you got to remember there's going to be an accounting. What says verse 5 here? He says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Let me tell you something. The wicked will be judged one of these days. They're going to be judged. But also, the righteous will be judged. Ecclesiastes 12 and 14 says, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Paul says in Romans 14 10, For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. What does it mean to judge somebody? It means to evaluate, to discern, to examine. 
And so we got to remember, at the end of our lives, we all will face an examination. Now, for the Christian, we pass from judgment. But guess what? Your works will be judged, whether or not you will get rewards or not. Now, for the lost people, they've got the great white throne judgment in which they will give an account for what they have done and they will spend eternity in hell. And you know what? Listen, let me tell you this right here, and I'm, I'm going to try to close. If you know you're going to give an account, if you remember that, you are less likely to do something foolish. Right? If you know, take for instance, in your job, if every Friday you had a meeting with your boss and he was going to ask you, what did you do this week? I guarantee you this, you wouldn't lay around and be lazy on the clock because you know you got to answer for that. Child of God, every single one of us, we have got to answer for what we have done in our lives. And so he says here, verse 6, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, those that are already dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they will live according to the will of God. The point of this verse is to encourage us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our persecution, that we got to have a militant attitude toward sin in our life and realize sin has a cost. Realize that sin has been conquered through Jesus Christ on the cross. Realize that I've got to watch my appetites every single day, my fleshly desires, and make sure I keep them under check by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then I've got to watch my acquaintances, who I hang out with, making sure that I keep good company because Bad company corrupts good character. And then I've got to remember, we're all going to give an account. And let me tell you something. Every single one of us in here, the gospel's been preached to you. It's been preached. You can't stand before God and say, I didn't know. I didn't know I was supposed to live that way. I didn't know I was supposed to do that. No. We are called to live different. We're called to live different holy lives we're not called to blend in we're called to stand out we're called to make a difference in this world by being the salt and light that God has called us to be is it easy no it's not easy but you got to wake up with a purpose in your mind that I am going into a war zone today and I want to be walking in the spirit I want to be filled with the Spirit every single day. Can we stand? Come on, be playing. we got a few minutes. I want us to do this right here. I want everybody that will to come and gather in this altar and just stand.